Hello to our listeners. Welcome to the Women Governance Trailblazers podcast, where we listen to the journeys of trailblazing women in the corporate governance field, their passions, struggles, and commitment to improving how companies and boards function. My name is Courtney Camlet, and my amazing co-host is Liz Dunchy. Hi, everyone. Liz and I are both super passionate about governance, and we want to spotlight some of the amazing women who share that passion. We're connecting with guests from different paths and industries to hear their perspectives on what surprised them in their career and where they think the field of corporate governance is going. For this episode, we're really excited to be talking with Allison Harrod and Lee, former acting chair and commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission, and currently a senior research fellow at NYU Law and of counsel to Cone Cone and Cola Pinto, where her focus includes ESG governance and audit, securities laws, and representing whistleblowers. Allison is also a director at the International Foundation for Valuing Impact and a member of the board at Persephone AI, Inc., in addition to being a member of Persephone's Sustainability Advisory Board. So she brings many valuable perspectives to the conversation. We are very excited to be talking with you today, Allison. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Courtney and Liz. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, we are very excited you could take the time, as Courtney mentioned. So, Allison, you've done a lot in your career, obviously. Tell us about your career path and what drew you to becoming a securities lawyer and joining the SEC, what you're doing now in your various roles, and what's next for you? Sure. Well, that's a lot. I'll, I'll start with my career path. I My undergraduate degree is a business degree in mineral management. So I was in the oil business for a number of years before I went to law school, after I had had kids. And I was actually almost 40 when I graduated from law school. So I went back late as an adult. And then I joined a firm in Denver. This is where I raised my kids. I live in Denver, Colorado. When I'm not in DC or New York, I joined a, a large firm here in Denver and was, I would say I was intrigued by their securities law practice, mainly because it was, in my view, I was a litigator to start with. Let me just say that. And in the litigation context, it seemed to me that the most interesting, most sophisticated practice at this firm was their securities law practice. So I was drawn to that. Of course, I was working at the time on the defense side, shareholder derivative suits, you know, securities fraud, class actions and the like. So I got to see it from that perspective. After having worked in public companies and had to think about how to comply with sort of the securities law regime, then going into private practice and thinking about how to defend those types of actions. And then I joined the SEC in 2005. I will say that I I loved that firm and I still do. I had a lot of great mentors there and, and learned a lot, but I always knew I wanted to go into government service or public service. So when the opportunity presented itself at the Denver office of the SEC, I jumped, took a pretty big pay cut, as you might imagine, and went to the SEC and have never looked back. It was the best move and the most interesting part of my career by far. I was there for what, about 15 years, I guess, total, working most of that time as a an enforcement lawyer in what became the Complex Financial Instruments Unit and then became counsel for one of the commissioners in 2014, Kara Stein. Uh, back to the enforcement division after that, was preparing to retire and then wound up with the job of commissioner and later acting chair. Last summer, well, not last summer, in the summer of 2022, it's already been almost two years, and I have been teaching and practicing 
That's amazing. And the SEC is an amazing place to start either to learn securities or if you're a securities aficionado, it's a great place to be. So great that you were there almost 15 years. Yeah, agreed. I can't I can't tell you what a, an amazing experience that was. It was by far, and I've had a lot of jobs in my life and done a lot of different things. Nothing compares to the experience of the SEC. That was, was a highlight for me. Hmm. That's so inspiring. And I love that you were open to career changes. And as someone who fantasized about working at the SEC at some point, but is located in the middle of the country. That's a great story to hear. Well, I'm sure we can find ways to get you to lure you back if you're interested. (laughs) That's why the regional offices are so great. That's right. Were there things that surprised you or changed your perspective once you became acting chair and commissioner of the SEC? Yes. There are always, as you probably remember, Courtney, from your time there, there are always surprises at the SEC. It's a massive institution with broad jurisdiction and really to try to get your arms around all of the expertise and all of the little niches in the markets and the like that the SEC is responsible for overseeing is pretty astonishing. So what I would say in terms of surprises, I would say that I was very, um, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but it took me a while to embrace and understand the back and forth of the political mechanism with the Hill and the agency. When you're on staff, you don't really think that way. You're just sort of focused on your job at hand. You're focused on mission. When you get into the leadership role, You have to shift gears and think about a different group of stakeholders. You have the capital markets. That's your central focus and your central goal. But there is a political, you know, it's a bureaucracy. It's part of the federal government. There's Hill oversight. And so that piece took me a while to really get my arms around and understand. So I'm not sure I would call it surprising as much as like a new frontier that I had to kind of understand better and navigate. So true. So you you did a lot while you were at the commission. You started the ESG task force and many other things. What was your proudest moment as a commissioner? And kind of building on that last question, after being on the staff, what myths were dispelled once you became a commissioner? Wow, my proudest moment as a commissioner. I'm not sure I could choose just one. And and I guess what I would say is a couple of things come to mind. One, I would say as a commissioner, I had numerous experiences with my colleagues on the commission, my fellow commissioners, where we really sat down. I literally, like I remember once in 1130 at night, sitting in the office of, a, of a, one of my fellow commissioners, trying to reach an agreement, trying to find a way to bridge our philosophical divide mm-hmm. on a policy issue. The reason I remember it so well is how hard we both worked, even though we, we had the same goal, but different views on how to get there. Mm-hmm. And how determined we were to find a way to sacrifice some of the things we thought each of us thought needed to happen in order to to reach a consensus and what I think was a really good outcome. Obviously, I can't share the, the details of that discussion, but what I will say is I had numerous discussions like that. It may not appear when you see the battle lines get drawn and you see these rules and you see the dissents and the like. What you don't necessarily see is all of close collaboration that goes on in the in an attempt to find better solutions, more consensus, a broader base of support for policy approaches. I had moments like that, you know, where I I was very proud to be part of that process and very, very proud to be working with such amazing professionals who were so deep on policy and cared so much. Those kind of moments come to mind. I will say to, I don't know if you recall, but when I became the acting chair, it was in, of course, right after the inauguration in mid-January, mid to late January. And one week into my tenure, 
is when you may remember the uh, people connected to GameStop. And how could we forget? (laughs) Yes. And that was a pretty riveting moment. First of all, of course, President Biden lands Air Force One and they're asking him questions about that. He's sitting on the tarmac. And and so you can imagine there was a lot of focus from all corners, from the Hill, from the White House, whatever, on the agency. And what I would say is that was another moment where I was so unbelievably privileged to be part of the staff of that agency because the expertise across that agency on the numerous issues that were presented by that was just not just the expertise, but the dedication. There were staffers staying up all night trying to understand what happened, trying to analyze the information, trying to get it to me in a digestible way. So I had, you know, the general counsel's office, the trading and markets division, people in Corp Fin, people in enforcement, just all across the agency who understood and spent time and threw in their, you know, their lot to help us all try to get our arms around it and report out to FSOC, to, you know, the White House and and the like. That was a moment I'll never forget because of my faith in the staff of that commission was just crystallized. It had always been Mm -hmm. there, but that was a pretty amazing moment for me to see that kind of of passion and, and expertise. Wow. That's something you consistently hear whenever you talk with former staffers like Courtney or other people or current staffers. It's just such an amazing team and such an amazing group of people. And you should definitely be proud of the teamwork and all that you accomplished while you were there. I'm definitely proud of the staff. I can tell you that it was quite a privilege. Yeah, it was uh, friends I still have to this day that I'm extremely close with. It was an amazing organization with a great mission. So Flipping now a little bit to ESG disclosure, I know that it's something I spend a lot of time on. Liz is deep in ESG disclosure. You were a driving force behind the SEC's focus on ESG disclosure. How do you think the commission can balance the laudable goals of investor protection and consistent disclosure with the risk of pushing capital formation to less regulated private markets? And could you also share your views on how a rules-based disclosure framework benefits public companies? Absolutely. We take those questions seriatim. I'll start with the notion of how do you balance investor protection, consistent disclosure, and you sort of said against pushing capital formation to less regulated markets. And that's a, in my view, I will say that I believe there are ways in which I regard that as a bit of a false dichotomy because I don't think, so anytime you're thinking about what should be part of the disclosure regime required of public companies, you're always going to have to weigh costs and benefits. That's that's an analysis that we do by law that we did even before we were required to do it by law. And we take it very, excuse me, I shouldn't say we, they take it very seriously. But if you are comparing the cost, anytime you compare public to private markets, you're never, public markets are always going to be more expensive for companies because of the nature, because of what the sort of dynamics that they create. So I don't think it makes sense to, um, especially when you consider how much private markets have grown over the last 15 years, if all we do every time we think about what the public markets should look like is try to focus on the additional cost and ask ourselves whether it's going to push yet more, those markets are awash with capital. So we can never compete meaning public markets are never going to be able to um, to compete with the kind of capital that's available in private markets. So I don't think, I do think we have to think very carefully about what the right regime is, and we have to weigh those costs and those benefits. But I don't really buy into the notion that each time we create rules in that space, we're pushing more capital. I think it's a different dynamic that's pushing capital into those private markets than just the incremental addition of 
particular disclosure rules. So that's a pretty long-winded answer, but it's one I've given a lot of thought to. I think that every time we do something in the private market and every time we do something in the public market, what we should be looking at more broadly is how do, what do we think about that dividing line? And if what we do is we push down on the disclosure in public markets in order to avoid putting them pushing people into private markets, if we put downward pressure on that, we end up potentially erasing the distinction, which, you know, the distinction is there for a really good reason. So I, I view that a little bit differently from kind of what I hear very frequently, which is, aren't you concerned that you're going to push capital into private markets? The answer is yes, I am concerned about that, but I don't think the problem comes from the, the disclosure regime. I think it's a much different and much bigger uh, sort of thorny problem that we need to think about and tackle. Um, one that we could spend an hour talking about, and I won't. I'll stop yeah, there. Um, absolutely. There is a lot of nuance in that delineation, not even taking away the disclosure. So Yeah. And then the second question about how a rules-based disclosure framework benefits public companies. And there, I assume you're sort of talking about the, the difference between rules versus standards. So standards like materiality and then rules like tell us the top five earners in your executive comp, you know, disclosures. Is that kind of the, the framing that you're thinking of there? Yeah, I think that aspect of it, as well as these voluntary disclosure frameworks that are cropping up and the duplicative information requests and standards yep. and inconsistencies that public companies may have to encounter if there aren't actual rules. Yeah, no, that's right. There are two, sort of two ways of thinking about that. And I think a couple of things. First of all, I want to say this. The SEC's focus is on benefiting capital markets broadly, right? And public companies are part of that ecosystem and so are investors. So anytime the SEC is thinking about policy, they have to be thinking broadly about the entirety of the capital markets ecosystem. Nevertheless, I do think there are many ways in which having a rules-based framework can benefit public companies. First and foremost, if you have to make a determination of whether something is material in order to decide whether to disclose and then what to disclose, that's an expensive proposition. You're going to be hiring a large silk stocking law firm. They, you could spend millions of dollars trying to do that analysis and then try to decide, okay, we've made a decision. It meets a threshold. What should we say about it? That's an expensive undertaking. If instead, what you know is you've just got to identify, and again, I'm just using executive comp as an example, but if you've got to identify your top five earners and put into tabular format, what it is, kind of their comp packages, that to me is much more straightforward and potentially less expensive than undertaking an in-depth type of standards analysis. But your point, Liz, too, is a good one in the sense that when you have what, we, what we're seeing now in the ESG space, which is this proliferation of voluntary disclosure that's basically coming because of the efforts of investors. So companies are going to do it. They, they're responding to market forces. But the larger companies are naturally better resourced and can take more tests, right? You've got how many different data aggregators are asking them questions and sending them questionnaires and doing all of that. They have the resources to respond in a way that smaller public companies cannot. If you have a regime that says, here is the baseline for what you need to disclose in this space, 
that can level the playing field a little bit for some of those under or lesser resourced firms. And I've heard that many, many times from, from smaller public companies. I'm not suggesting they're beating the door down at the SEC asking for <laughs> more, more uh, requirements, but they are fully aware of competitive advantages that they can enjoy in some circumstances when there is a baseline that comes from the SEC versus just a proliferation of demands from various stakeholders. Yeah, because like you were saying, it requires judgment, extra judgment and extra analysis to decide what to respond to. And and if you can just say, oh, well, we're, we're complying with the rule, then hopefully investors will be satisfied with that. But in my experience working with smaller companies, it's true they aren't beating down the door for new rules either. <laughs> They're trying to get their arms around the state law requirements in addition to the voluntary frameworks and investor demands and what might be coming out of the SEC. So there's just a lot to keep track of right now. You know, you raise state law requirements and you and I'm sure you've been observing how we've seen California come out with some climate disclosure. We have some bills in other states that are similar to to what they've done in, in California. That's a that's a potentially nightmarish outcome in my view for public companies and even private companies at some level trying to figure out what to do there. So a very good reason, in my view, for a federal regulator to step in and try to bring some uniformity and consensus to the space. I intend no criticism of California and what they're doing, but I'm quite worried about the potential impact on capital markets more broadly if this kind of disclosure proceeds on a state-by-state basis. Right. Right. And they, we started out this conversation talking about your history as an enforcement lawyer. And so obviously the risks of enforcement increase too, the more different regulatory regimes companies are trying to comply with. Yeah. Well, thank you, Allison, so much for tackling that complex question in a very succinct manner and for joining us today. We loved having you. For those who are listening, we want to thank you as well. Please subscribe to Women Governance Trailblazers on whatever platform you use for podcasts. We would love if you would rate us while you're there. And in addition, if you know a Women Governance Trailblazer who you think would be a great guest on this show, feel free to ping Courtney or me on either LinkedIn or by email. Thanks.